Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we celebrated two Surfing Nash milestones, 20,000 downloads on Buzzsprout, and one year on that platform. The episode itself included excerpts of five interviews with a total of seven surfers. This weekend, we are offering these interviews in full. In this conversation, Stephen Harrison and Naina Corey joined Louise Campbell and me for separate conversations. With Stephen, we discussed how the podcast started, why it has exceeded our wildest hopes, what we see for the year ahead, and when we might fulfill Louise's crazy urge to sample deep-fried turkey. With Naeem, we discussed new ideas for episodes, what it meant for him to perform ode music on the podcast, and who thinks he's cool because he's on a podcast now. These are longer than your typical weekend conversations. Between the energy, insight, and crazy laughter at the time, you should just slip by. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. So Stephen, how are you? Oh, I'm good. I am good. I'm. Uh, it's Friday, and I only have about 75 things left to do today. It's a great day. I mean, I just starting at, at five this morning and going nonstop. Got to see some patients, and and I get to see you guys. And Louise, I'm not used to seeing you outside on the veranda during the daytime. I see flowers in the background. What do we got going here? It's my orangery, I suppose they call it. So um, yeah, and that's our green wall. We're about 10 feet down. In chalk, so ivy everywhere. Yeah. Bit of light. Nice daytime. I do come out in the daytime. Not quite the vampire. <laughs> I, I know. I'm used to seeing the cat roaming around, and you oh, know, she's been yeah. around. Oh, you missed you missed the cat. The, the She'll cat, be back, no doubt. Yeah, the cat basically decided to audit the entire discussion with, I guess it was Jorn. Jorn. Yeah. And the gap between Jean and yeah. then a bit of our conversation and a bit of yeah. you. And then she scarpered. <laughs> so, Stephen, I never turned off the microphone at the end of mic, so we're, we're, we're live all the way through. Let's just keep rolling. I've had four questions for people, but I've got a fifth one for you. I tell my version of the story all the time. But in your recollection, how did we come to start this? Wow, that that's a good question. So I guess we just had a conversation one day, right, about needing to get information out relative to steatohepatitis and NASH and NAFLD in general in an era where meetings weren't happening. And I think that's actually how it started, wasn't it, Roger? We were lamenting the fact that meetings were pushed off and like NASHTAG, right? Pretty close. I mean, to my recollection. My recollection is that we were lamenting about that. And while we were crying in our figurative beers because nobody was drinking and we were on video and it was 11 o'clock in the morning or something, you also got to the challenges that developers and investors were having believing that anyone could do a clinical trial while all this was going on. That's right. Yes. So that whole other piece of everything was shutting down and we were staying open and there was a way to make it happen and a way to make it work. Why is everybody shutting down research when this is exactly the patient population that needs to be treated and treated aggressively so that if they do get infected with COVID, they have a potentially better outcome. And so, yeah, that was part of it as well. It was like, how do we have a voice of reason in all of this? And so let's start a podcast. Let's talk about COVID. COVID. Let's talk about COVID and liver disease, particularly fatty liver. And let's talk about clinical trials and and how to continue to enroll and what the challenges are relative to enrolling in the in the middle of a pandemic. So do you remember the first letter we ever got? I'm trying to find it. I've got to scroll back like 16 months. It was from a patient. Yeah, we talked about that. And a complete surprise because it wasn't what we expected, right? It was first week and it was from a patient who wanted to know, A, was he going to die? And B, could anything be done to help him? If I lose I'll get back to the actual words, but that was the thrust of it. And I recall looking at each other over that. I'm not going to go all the way back. There's going to take me longer than I find it than 
it's worth. I remember looking at each other over a video call and saying, gee, that's different. You got really excited. Yeah, there was that excitement for sure. And, and then as we began to get feedback from unusual places, right? I mean, from different countries, from different people that we didn't think necessarily would listen to the podcast. And here we were getting feedback that uh, that our message was reaching venues and places of the world that we never thought we would go. It just kind of empowered us to continue to drive on. And obviously now we talk about a lot more than just COVID and a lot more than just clinical trials. And I think that is because of the feedback we've received that, quite frankly, surfing the Nash tsunami is the only steady, consistent data delivery mechanism for this field. It surplants Congresses, journal articles, local meetings. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're very broad based. I mean, we have Louise, who brings an incredible experience with her from her vantage point and a different part of the world. And there's your vantage point and what you bring to the table. There's my piece and then all the guests that we have that come on from patient advocates to other key opinion leaders to pharma representatives, sponsors, people that are experts in non-invasive testing strategies, both physicians and sponsor side of the house. We could go on and on. I mean, it has really morphed into a complete repository for fatty liver disease information delivery. I think that's fair. So I'm going to hold you to there because you started about when you started the podcast, but your history goes back before the podcast. So how did you two from different backgrounds in the field hook up in the first place to even be connected to take to take on such a challenge and to develop uh, such a 20,000 downloads just from Busprout is an amazing achievement for um, for what you started. So how did you two even get together to be in that zone? So when Michael and Vlad first came up with the idea for Nashtag, their stroke of brilliance was putting it in Utah. Because when I was invited to go speak at Nashtag 2019, I knew nothing about Nash. I knew Yasmin from other work I had done in Ultra Orphan with a couple of clients she liked. But she told me it was a cool meeting and I'd never skied Utah before. So I figured, great, I'll go ski Utah. That that can't be a problem. And then I started learning, reading about Nash and commercialization concepts and came to the conclusion, this story you have heard a bunch, that a lot of what the development community or the commercial people in the development community believe probably wasn't right. So I decided it would be a nice idea to give a 20-minute talk educating people a little bit on the meaning of some of the things that they were saying, why this wasn't the statin market, why you couldn't save an economy $1.1 trillion in liver transplants when there weren't enough livers to spend 10% of that money, a couple of other things. And um, the talk was received in a really interesting way. Nobody said anything. Nobody whispered. Nobody looked at their cell phones. And this was at a quarter of eight in Utah. That is a quarter of 10 in the east on the first night of the conference. Yasmin calls me two days later and says, hey, Stephen Harrison wants to talk to you. He thinks there should be something you guys can do together. And I guess we just started talking. How am I doing? Yeah, that's spot on. Our first interaction, Louise, was at Nashtag. And it was an introduction made by Yasmin. And it opened my eye to a completely different part of this world of fatty liver that I didn't have any experience with or focus on or understanding of. So that's been a very awesome partnership in the sense that he's educated me and we've been able to educate each other about our little particular nuances of liver disease. So I guess it was a couple years prior to starting the podcast, right? That, was, that was 19. And uh, then I came back in 20. And then we started the podcast after that. And, and Stephen, I have to tell you, frankly, I think it's good to hear you've benefited in the way you should describe. I think I've benefited more 
I kind of got to a point in my life where I was tired of what I was doing and didn't know what I wanted to do next. And these issues I thought were really interesting. And if you come out of a career in marketing research where you make a recommendation and then you too often walk away and see what your client does with it and your client probably doesn't have a seat at the table, to be in a place where the things that we could do could have impact. And it's clear to me this podcast is having impact, if only because people tell us, but then they tell us specifically why and how. And to get involved with an important disease that people didn't understand nearly well enough um, has been amazingly reinvigorating and uplifting for me to do. And I, I thank both of you guys, and I thank actually the whole community for uh, giving me space to have fun and be productive. Yeah. And if we think about what all we've accomplished, it's significant. And where we're headed, I think, is worth a discussion as well, because I just came up from talking to a 61-year-old Hispanic lady downstairs who is screening for a NASH cirrhotic trial. And we see this all the time. But my comments to her were, how did you get to me? And did you know you had liver disease for years and years and years prior to being told you had cirrhosis? And her comment to me was, Dr. Harrison, I have been told I've had intermittently elevated liver chemistry tests for decades, and nobody did anything about it. And finally, one day, I'm having a colonoscopy. I'm being seen for just a routine colonoscopy. And while I'm in the pre-op area, my gastroenterologist comes in and says, how are you doing? And I mentioned that I'm having some upper abdominal discomfort. And he says, well, since I'm doing your colonoscopy, why don't I just do an upper endoscopy on you as well? And for a gastroenterologist, we call that a rotisserie. You know, we basically do the colon, spin you around, do the upper. And, you know, it, we're there, you're sedated, let's just take a look. And, you know, we take that colonoscopy, we wipe it off with baby wipes, and then we, we look down the throat. No, I, jokingly, that's what I tell my patients we do. And obviously, it's a, it's a different <laughs> altogether. Yeah, right. um, but uh, she says, after I recovered, he came out and told me that I had these dilated veins in my esophagus that he called varices and that I needed to go get a fiber scan done and that there was concern I might have liver disease. And that's how I was diagnosed. And it, it's not that I didn't have it all along. It's just nobody worked me up. And, and I made the comment to her. I said, you know what? That's how most people present. Most people, if you read the literature, present in the ER with decompensating cirrhosis. And you obviously were picked up before you made it that far along. But part of this is a disease state awareness issue. And she's like, you have got to get this word out. Out. How can I help you? What do we need to do to deliver this message at the grassroots patient level so that we can become advocates for our own health? And, you know, it got me thinking about our podcast and how can we deliver a message that's geared and designed directly to patients? And I think that may be something we think about in moving forward. So a lot of what we're exploring now are exactly what kinds of education beyond what's in this weekly podcast do we want to deliver and to whom? For what happened to your patient to happen, all kinds of things that should have happened before that didn't happen. Somebody was reading the uh, elevated liver enzyme tests and shrugging them off for whatever reason, which means either they didn't care or they didn't know how to evaluate further or both. She didn't have a source of information that she could attach readily to tell her about any of that. And whoever was paying for her health insurance never looked at those tests and flagged. So frankly, the challenge is going to be to educate patients, but really to work with the whole system, figure out what do people have to know for this to get better? And then what kind of tools can we create to help that happen. So you see, we were talking to Ian Rowe a little while ago, and obviously, you know, one of the things a lot of his work is about is how are people really going to use the tools they're given? Go back to that idea that goes, well, if I tell you to do an ELF before a fiber scan, it really doesn't matter because if I don't believe the ELF, I'm going to do the fiber scan anyway. And that's going to happen so often, why don't I just go straight to fiber scan? So I think we have a ton of 
really work to do to educate and to create different environments where people can learn what they need to know. I think we're lucky. We've got, you know, we've got good friends. We've got Donna. We've got lots of things we can do with GLI. And uh, ideally, we'll have some companies that are interested in working with us on this. I, I agree with you. We've got, it's a long runway out ahead, hey? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I think we're so much better because Louise came on and joined us and has been a... I'm just a saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we had a different group that we started out with, Roger. I mean, it was me and you and Yasmin and Peter. And then it's evolved, if you will. And having Louise, I, I don't even know how, how did we, how how did you come about getting on the podcast? I can't even remember that. I'm sure. My recollection was that I tweeted, I put something on LinkedIn and Roger came back to me on it. And then we touched base, didn't we? Uh, from one recollection, we had a conversation. He said, I like your viewpoint on something these things. And I, I will be quite honest, I don't necessarily tell the party political line. I'm not a political natured nurse. There's a reason I chose to stay in direct patient care because I've always, in 99% of the cases, to move up in a health structure, you have to follow a certain political line and not necessarily rock the boat too often. And I can be a rocker of a boat. I think we had a comment in one of the slides about the naffled versus maffled and sometimes Sometimes you just have to take a sledgehammer to something. Now, that can be very productive, but shake a few feathers. But to be fair, I only have one life. I only have one career. And actually, I do view that sometimes it's not worth wasting a lot of time and effort when you need to get a message home that saves people's lives an awful lot earlier. And I don't apologize for that. And I think that's where Roger and I came in. And I will, I'm not necessarily, I'm certainly not right all of the time, but I will learn all of the time. And putting a viewpoint. Did did I hear a female say she wasn't right all the time? You did. You did. (laughs) And you heard a female nurse (laughs) leader tell you they weren't right all of the time and I think I'm human but I will learn all of the time and I will digest that information and I will put it into the context but what we bring is a more practical patient but I'm not a patient I've been lucky never to have to be to this day a patient and I choose not to be but I will fight for people's right not to be a patient and know their health and I think that's where I love what you guys do and the people who come to this podcast. So I just fell into it, and I'm a, a bit of a fatalist on that. The contest at right time, right place, right comment. And Roger and I just hooked up, and we can talk football forever. We could do a podcast just on football. <laughs> Well, there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Although, although I have to tell you, we really did a disservice to Jorn and to uh, Louise today because we scheduled their call for the time when Liverpool was playing Mainz, and Mainz being, you know, Jorn's home team, and Liverpool obviously being Louise's. And neither Which one I of didn't them, notice. <laughs> neither one of them could watch the match because they had to do this interview. Mm. So, Stephen, score, score one for the Americans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but so uh, I think Louise, that that's probably writer even than you realize because when we started talking, I thought. Bringing Louise on the podcast would be a great idea, but I did not know when. And then three hours before our fourth episode, I got a phone call from Yasmin that the folks she was working for at that point in time felt that going out and giving opinions on a weekly basis was not regulatorily something that they thought she should be doing, that she could come on from time to time, but not weekly. And if I remember correctly, Peter couldn't make it that week either for a reason. And and I've always tried to have at least three people on the podcast, not that Stephen and I couldn't fill an hour and a half, but just isn't the right thing to do. And Louise was available. And then the next week you weren't on. We originally thought we'd have you on. The week after that was Naffled and Maffled with Quentin. And for that, you weren't on. And then you came back after that. And that was it. And you stuck with me now, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, lucky us, you know. 
it, 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 it works out really it works out really well i think it's a great balance and i still not that is deep fine turkey well yeah that's true so, well we got to get you to nash tag or to i am currently scheduling in to go to nash tag to get my skis there you, go. there you go well then after that you have to throw a private party at whistler for those of us who want to go up to your place there but <laughs> yeah we thought we'd actually come back via barbados and get some suntan after the skiing <laughs> <laughs> Going to Whistler suits me as well. <laughs> not, not, none of these are bad ideas. None of these are bad ideas. We'd also ask Ian if he thought he was going to make it to ASLD. He said he wasn't sure. He's taking a look at it. We have to do a surfer party when we all get together. Deep fried turkey and decent red meat and something vegan for people who need to eat that way. And uh, we'll make it work. It'll be good. So, so, Stephen, I have a question for you. We've been doing this a year and a half now. What's your favorite moment? Can you think of one that you really like particularly well? I saw that question that you had posed. And I don't know if I have a favorite moment. I have very fond memories of several different podcast. I remember having a bit of a discussion. I wouldn't call it necessarily heated, but a memorable discussion with Peter Traber, which I thought was very good. I love hearing all the things that our guests do that we don't know that they do. You know, so Mason Dereden being a, a very good basketball player, you know, Naeem Al-Khori and his, and his instrument that he plays, you know, all those different stories that people come on and tell us. That's very fun to listen to. I always love it when Donna comes on because I, I learned so much from Donna and all her insight, all of her expertise, all of her wisdom of being on Capitol Hill and, and what that means from a political perspective and insight from a patient perspective that she brings to the table. Her energy and her passion that she has for the Global Liver Institute. There's just so many different episodes we've done that, that I fondly remember. I can't put my finger on one particular one that I like more than the other, though. So, Louise clearly did. And it, ironically, Louise and it was Jorn, right? Who had the same moment? Yeah, Ian, yeah, they both. They both. Which was the moment Donna made sure Vlad understood that it didn't matter why she died. If she was dead, she was dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's a it's a Donna moment, right? It's a Donna moment. Well, I, I, have, I have another Donna moment, which she knows I like a lot better than she does, which was Mike Charlton asking on one of the Nash Tech episodes that you were not on, who's going to be the Larry Kramer of Nash? Right, right. <laughs> And, and Donna, she, she got comfortable with it after I, she and I had a long talk about who Larry Kramer was to me and how that was different than who Larry Kramer was to others. I've, I've asked Mazin actually to go try to find what I think she needs, and he said he's on it, so we'll see what happens. Frankly, I think the Larry Kramer of Nash has to be from L.A., virtually has to be, for a whole variety of reasons. But he knows a lot of those people, so maybe we can make that work. I want to say my favorite moment was probably the post-FDA webinar and listening to where Kitty Yale was aligned with the academic and where she wasn't. We don't get that many commercial people to come on and we don't get that many commercial people to come on in a moment where there's that much inflection. I, I just thought it was great. She was great. She's Scottish. She's going to tell it to you just like it is, right? I mean, <laughs> so that's okay. So, so I like that moment. Now you just need an Irish one to come on and that one will be a little headstrong and probably try to start a fight, but that's okay. Well, I so, know a perfect Irish physician and she's she is headstrong, but I don't think she'll start a fight. No. Yeah. But if, I, if you one tell thing us. I've learned, one thing I've learned about folks from the UK is if you look at the, the English, the Scottish and the Irish as a military guy, the Irish always want to be on the front line. Just put me in the fight. Throw me in there. And then, you know, if you want to really rough somebody up, you then send the Scots in. Right. And then and then the uh, the English come in afterwards and uh, and kind of just secure the territory and plant the flag. Right. While smoking their, <laughs> while smoking their pipe. I'm yeah. going to stay. I'm, I'm going to. I have 
have I've got a long uh, half. I've got a very strong Irish side in our family. With a name like Campbell, I've obviously got a very good Scottish side in the family. So I play neutral territory as an English person should. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and plant the flag. So, 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 there so, you go. so you're Switzerland, huh? Okay, good. I like it. I yeah. like it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and Manx. But, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I sit right between all four of them, including <laughs> 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 That's funny. <laughs> Stephen, in your mind, we look at this next year. How will we know if we've succeeded in the next year? I think we, we've already succeeded. And I, I think success is really just defined by uh, the fact that that uh, we still have more and more people downloading and listening to our podcast and more and more countries are, are adding, you know, to that list every every week or so. And, you know, I guess success moving forward is really defined by that continued listener pool of folks. And how do we expand that? How do we reach more people? I think that's a job that the four of us need to focus on and and get after. But, you know, I think success is really defined by how many people listen to what we're doing. I I think that's fair. I would add one more thought to it, maybe, which is that there's a lot more information in this space right now than there was a year ago. And that's even with COVID having slowed down the rate at which clinical trial results come out. The information about everything other than clinical trials, diagnostics, patient treatment, et cetera, will continue to expand rapidly. And the clinical trial data will start ballooning again. And our ability to get the things that matter most to the people that need to hear them, I think some of that will wind up getting picked up in listenership, but it might also wind up getting picked up and finding an ability to create a few more ways to get information to people. Because as information explodes, not everybody needs to hear all the same things. So we have a couple of things to sort out. That said, I agree with you. I think the single best question is going to be how many folks are listening to things that we're putting out. It just might wind up being more than one of them. All right. So Anything else you want to lend to this conversation before you uh, kind of head back into your day? I think think Naeem should be here about now. He's next. If you want to hang around and harass him, feel free. If you need to get back to other stuff, feel free to do that. Yeah, I've got to finish up a couple of papers, uh, actually. So I need to jump before other meetings I have today. But congratulations to to both you guys as well. And thank you for uh, driving this paradigm forward. And and I just love being a part of it. So thank you. Thank you and you. Yeah, Stephen, we wouldn't have Couldn't it without do it without you and your we, keep we, it simple, stupid. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I think, frankly, the amount of education that you are able to provide efficiently and in ways that people want to hear drive a lot of audience, and your reputation in the community is driving a lot of the participation. So we couldn't do this without you. And thank you so much. But I will make you laugh, Stephen, before you go. Every now and again, and I got one just before you came on from. I do clinical care options, and it came up. Stephen Harrison, and I'm thinking, he's all over my phone. My husband's going to think he's, a <laughs> he's in this, he's in that. And all of a sudden, and your picture came up with Stephen Harrison. And it's like, I can't leave. I can't get away. I can't get away. I can't get away. <laughs> Not until I've had his fried turkey. <laughs> but um, no, it is a pleasure because you are so funny. And, that, and I think that's what I love. You make it real. And you make it understandable. And I think that is a language that is not common with key opinion leaders and physicians um, in general. And I think I know a few very good orators in relation to patient communication. But I have to say, hands down, you are way one of the best. So thank you for actually making it real. You're you're way too kind. The the only reason I keep it raw and simple is because the butter slides (laughs) off my biscuit every single day. And I am one step away from stupid. So, you know, with that in mind, it's easy for me to keep it simple, stupid. Because that's all I know. (laughs) Well, it's great. Thanks. All right. Uh, We'll see you Monday. Enjoy your weekend. Okay. Have a lovely time. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. 
Hey, Naeem, how are you? Good, good. Sorry, we have this monsoon season. It's been raining like crazy. And I don't know, is my voice okay? My internet connection has been a little bit uh, shaky. You sound lovely as ever. You sound fantastic. So monsoon season in Tucson, in Phoenix? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year has been very different. You know, this is my second summer here. And last year was just like 115 degrees and sunny every day. And everyone said there is a monsoon. I'm like, this is a joke. There is nothing. But this year, I mean, almost every other day we're getting rain. I mean, it's heavy rainfall. It's pretty impressive. So I'm happy. This is great. Today, the high is going to be only 82 degrees. And meanwhile, up in the Pacific Northwest, where it's normally 75 degrees and raining every day, it's 115 and there's no rain. Yeah, yeah. In California, I mean, they're getting hit hard, but this year has been great. All right. Good, good work. Uh, happy anniversary, I guess. Congratulations to you. Thank you. And thanks for being such a big part of it. I'm trying to remember, where did we find each other first? It was Stephen. He was supposed to do something and then he got pulled away and he suggested that I cover. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. That was the first time. Stephen explained to me why you were an appropriate person to do that. I was going to say he had to sell you to me, but that would imply that I would have any reason not to want that. Actually, for a while there, you were kind of Stephen's understudy. Whenever there was no Stephen, you were there. And then obviously you've merged on your own. You're part of episode Stephen is on. There have been times we haven't even thought about getting Stephen, but you were available. So it's all been good. It's been a nice journey. I told you many people now, they just know me from the surfing, the national phenomenon. It, it means that people are listening. It, yeah, it does. It does. So I had this experience in Scottsdale at the CLDF. I'm wondering if you've had the same experience in places where I was walking around CLDF and people were looking around and it turned out they were looking around because they knew my voice, but they didn't know me and they weren't even sure who had the voice. I mean, you have a distinct voice. You are such a good host, honestly, Roger. I I mean, I hear it from so many people because, you know, we're physicians. I mean, we try to be entertaining, but we tend to be boring. So you keep it alive. You keep the conversation going and you have a, a great knowledge in the field. Uh, and you dig deep into these presentations when, uh, you know, you present from the meetings. You know, we can all tell that you know the science, which is very important. So you're not just a good host. You're actually someone who understands what's going on. And I mean, you have years of experience in medicine in general, but we, we like your perspective on things related to other disease areas, whether it's statins or pricing or insurance thinking. So you've been really good for us in the NAFL field. Thank you, Naeem. And, and if you all found out the degree which I'm bluffing, it would really be scary, wouldn't it? I've, I've always said that one of the things I'm fortunate in is that I can explain everything I know about something. M most people, there's a big gap between how much you know and how much you can articulate. With me, there's no gap at all. So if I ever get to Q&A, I'm completely stuck because there is nothing you haven't heard already. But as long as I've got people like you and Steven and Louise and others around so that someone can answer all those questions, then no one's going to find me out and life's good. Hey? And for me, being on this podcast has been a big hit with my kids. <laughs> children and why do you submit them to this yeah, i know you know they they don't listen to the national tsunami podcast in all transparency but they listen to a podcast and when i told them i'm doing one they're like what like okay i guess you're a celebrity dad i'm like yeah uh, yeah so uh yeah but they they've listened to it you know just bits and pieces so they can believe me that i was on a podcast they got a kick out of it <laughs> so this has been really good for me to to be a cool dad i guess we are delighted to help you be a cool dad particularly living in such a place that is so hot, right? And with the monsoon. 
<laughs> you know, one of the highlights for me was actually that you featured my music in one of your episodes. You know, I played this instrument called oud, which is kind of like a Middle Eastern guitar. Many people approach me about that and they're like, oh, we love this, you know, and actually I had a gathering of physicians in my house. That was just a year ago or so, and they all wanted to hear the instrument. So that was just immediately before COVID, I would say probably a couple of months before. So yeah, that was nice. And, you know, this is uh, sentimental for me because it's kind of like from my country, from Syria, and my country is not doing well. So this was nice that you featured this. So I appreciate it. Anytime you come on and you want to bring another composition, we'll be happy to play it. And I was actually going to ask you, you said something when I saw you in Scottsdale about possibly collaborating with one of your um, practice mates who plays lead guitar, if I remember correctly. He plays guitar and banjo, Dr. Richard Manch. He's an old-time hepatologist, started the first liver transplant program in Arizona, very well known across the States, and he's a solid guitar player. So Has that ever gone anywhere? One of the reasons I ask is, you know, you were on for the wrong 10 minutes, but we had Magic Mike Wilson on for 10 minutes. Uh, Got to meet Steven briefly. Yeah. And he really loved your music, and he's pretty eclectic. So if we needed to get you an engineer, well, let's... and 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 I'm I'm a decent percussion player. Not not a drummer, but you know um, different rhythm things. So we could make we could make something happen here. I would love the idea, honestly. Let's let's look into it, and maybe we can even ask Dr. Manch to join and just uh, give us his perspective on Nafold. You know the history uh, for him. You know someone who's been in the field for forty years. What is his uh, recollection of Nafold forty years ago, twenty years ago, and now? That that you know what. Getting hit, getting a couple of those for him and one or two others and walking down memory lane, that would be a fantastic episode. Right? I'd maybe, love that. Maybe we can get Dr. Eugene Schiff, Willis Madry, one of these old timers because they give a nice historic perspective. And I'm sure they've seen some nasty cirrhosis back in the day that wasn't even on the radar, you know. So probably they've been dealing with it for longer than the literature suggests. I have to tell you something funny. The first conversation we did in this anniversary series was with Donna Cryer. And when I asked Donna what she wanted to see in the next year that we haven't covered yet. Her answer was payers, to which I said, Naeem talks to me about that all the time. I guess I got to get to it now. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, we need to get all these moving pieces and we need to get everyone on board and show them the real impact of this disease and how they can be actually saving money if they implement uh, screening strategies and then how they can actually find the patients that need to be treated immediately, how to triage patients. I think they would be actually pleased to know that for, for most people, lifestyle interventions and being more active is what it takes initially and if you catch the disease early, that's all you have to do. And then for the people that have advanced disease, that you are preventing progression to cirrhosis, liver cancer, liver transplantation. So at the end of the day, you are saving money. And this is a disease that's everywhere, right? So you can't just kick the can and, you know, move the patient to the next insurance company and say, well, maybe I won't be responsible for, you know, for these lives in two years or three years because you're going to get, you know, newer patients coming from other insurance providers. So we need to just, you know, take responsibility and uh, start, you know, having these conversations. We've done some of the work looking at diabetics and using some non-invasive tests. And uh, when it's all said and done, two simple tests like the FIP4 and potentially FibroScan, you're looking at probably 10% of uh, individuals that need to be seen by specialists and potentially be considered for pharmacologic treatment. Everyone else could be managed with lifestyle interventions. And these interventions will save lives and they'll be cost-effective for sure. And we have the cost-effectiveness analysis 
Justice with Maza Nuruddin and myself that we published in Gastroenterology showing that intensive lifestyle intervention is cost-effective uh, if you start screening diabetics who are middle-aged. Louise, let's do what you've been doing for this entire dialogue, which is great, which is take that conversation and walk it, if you will, even further up the track. When Naeem says start with 10 that might need care and 90 that can be handled with lifestyle, does that start to get close to when you say treat them before there's a problem, or would you like to take it further back than that? There's two points. The first interaction I'm aware of with Naeem, and I think it was really funny, was an episode that I wasn't on and Naeem was on, and you came from wellness, and Roger's comment was, I know Louise will be listening to this and laughing, which I was, because when I listened to it, I was laughing, and it made me think, and you're right, and I obviously talk a lot about taking it further back. We come out of any education system in the world not knowing enough about how we look after ourselves, which actually then fuels a health pandemic in every area. If you know more about how to look after a piece of wood or a car engine or something that may not assist you too much in life, but we actually don't know how to look after ourselves. Now, that's basic. That's lifestyle. That's well-being. That's fueled the pandemic currently with obesity. It's fueling a lot of disease around the world in low and middle income countries. So it can be structured somewhere into everybody's education system. That would be arguably the biggest healthcare change for everybody that would make a difference. But I know somebody will say, well, we need the evidence for that. <laughs> We've got the evidence that not putting it in is really not helping our healthcare. So let's go from the opposite track. But I think I was reviewing some data from some scanning that I've been doing recently to have a look at the one in four and what is the percentage uh, following easel. And I think I've just reviewed small numbers, but around about, I think it was 80 liver scans. The age range went from born in 65 to born in 1977. The predominant population was of the older demographic, but 51% of those people had abnormal livers. So that's actually way, way higher than the average for any age demographic. All of them had fat, high accumulation of fat. Some of them had already got cardiac disease or diabetes, but actually not one of them had NASH. There was no evidence of stiffening. So this whole thing, and I think I was drawn to an article that you liked in the BMJ recently on Twitter about simple steatosis fueling mortality and that all steatosis counts. And yes, of course, it was linked as a conclusion at the end to fibrosis, but it was all levels of fibrosis. So it, it was a, it's, a, it's a really pertinent article, I think, because I've linked it. I, I've certainly circulated it because doctors tell people simple fat doesn't matter and you've got fatty liver disease, don't worry. So if you've ever said that, get better educated. If you've ever been told that, actually get a second opinion because in today's world, you need to find the right opinion and, simple, and liver fat does. So I think yes and no, I take it back further, but I think we have to educate people to be more aware of their own health and be preventative and I think COVID is an opportunity all countries are looking at cardiometabolic we've had an obesity strategy obviously India who is massively affected by NAFLD with lots of genetic as we discussed before but there is the first country in the world to um, put in a NAFLD protocol and pathway the UK is very well able to do so and it's very well connected and Jeff Lazarus's work suggests that we're probably the most fit country to be able to do that but we're disjointed it's still about the very few that have been diagnosed rather than the population effect of moving it so i agree with all of those points but i would agree that we need to move it further backwards so louise first of all thanks for that and i think that's the perspective that, that matters most on this stuff, right? Yeah, because I'm doing people who turn up for lifestyle. I'm not doing people who are diagnosed. I'm turning up for people who want to scan because 
actually they like the idea of knowing if they've got a, an issue they need to change so that is a normal population public that turned up 51% of those people had really high liver fat and 75% of those have reduced their liver fat on that intervention no side effects no thing but will their lifestyle and they're taking control and that to me is where the education comes in so you know 51 sounds like a really high number but when you think about the SAMMC stuff where the number was 38 in a population that was say 10 years younger that all fits nine you have one favorite memory from the time you spent on the podcast so far or things you've heard us do while you've I mentioned the whole music piece and that I really liked. I've been a guest with different guests also that I value as friends and we've had very nice discussions. And I, I like the interactions we have. I mean, sometimes we have debates and we all uh, know each other. We know our papers and publications and, you know, you can get a sense what people believe. And I think sometimes it's nice to have these discussions and we, we're all open-minded. I change my perspective when I hear from other experts and I think we're all learning from each other. And this is what I find most valuable uh, in the podcast that, you know, this is how science works. We say things and we learn new things and then we change what we said and we're proud of it. And I think this is something that we're struggling with now as a country in the United States that everyone has an opinion now and everyone reads something on Facebook. And then if we change what we uh, preach after a new data is being generated, uh, people say that well, you didn't give us the accurate information, but this is science. And this is what I value the most about the podcast that I feel like we do it to educate but also we learn from each other and this brainstorming is very helpful. One thing I liked also is the easel coverage. I really felt like this is taking the podcast to a whole new level. I mean, I felt like if you didn't have a chance to actually listen to the sessions during easel because of the timing difference and you got really a nice summary of the meeting from experts in the field that also provided their own perspective and a little bit of background. So I think that was really well uh, received and I hope we continue to do this for ASLD and easel. Yeah, I just enjoy our conversations, Roger. I mean, you're just a, a fun person to talk to, and uh, I like listening to your perspective. Louise, I want to thank you for highlighting that paper that was published in GUT. This was Racy Simon and the group, but the, the data was generated in Sweden, and they had over 10,000 individuals with biopsy-proven uh, NAFLD, uh, you know, encompassing the whole spectrum. And what they showed that you compare them to controls, and the control group included 50,000 individuals. So this is a very large study, and they are matched for age and sex and year and county that, uh, you know, if you have NAFLD, increased mortality was 93% uh, compared to the general cohort. So that's the adjusted hazard ratio of 1.93. But then when they looked at just simple steatosis, the increase in mortality was 71%. Uh, so, you know, hazard ratio 1.71. And then they looked also at the hazard ratio for developing cirrhosis, HCC, extra hepatic cancers, and they're all increased in patients with simple steatosis. One message that I used to pre is if you have fatty liver disease and someone tells you, don't worry about it, that get a second opinion because we need to know the stage. And then if you have advanced disease, then you can be in trouble. But I'm guilty of telling many of my patients that just have simple steatosis, that from the liver standpoint, you're going to be okay. But these data suggest otherwise, that even if you have simple steatosis, you have definitely higher chances of progressing to cirrhosis, developing extrahepatic cancer. That was a, an eye-opener for me because, you know, we need to be vigilant, whether it's a screening colon or a mammogram, these patients are definitely higher risk. So we need to make sure that we at least follow the guidelines. Roger, we should probably have Tracy join us. I, I first, first of all, I completely agree with that. And that's one of the things I was thinking. Second, 
The extra hepatic didn't surprise me quite as much because if I remember the paper that someone in Zobar's group published, the one where they looked at the death certificates that were Ian later suggested, I think pretty compellingly, that the paper might have understated cardiovascular. It made the point that there was a bunch of extra hepatic cancers that you wouldn't have expected in that population. Look, as we all know, my last natural science course was high school biology, but I just keep thinking if the liver is how you clear things out of the system and those things don't get cleared, bad stuff's going to happen in lots of different ways. And the bad thing that will happen will reflect what else is going on in your body, which is why it could be extra hepatic, but it's not as straight a line as it is to HCC, but there's a there's a logic that goes, if you don't clear out bad things, but they accumulate, and that's not good. And not only that, there was a recent paper looking at bariatric surgery in patients with fatty liver showing actually after bariatric surgery, you have decrease in the risk of extra hepatic cancer. Did you post that? I saw that. I saw someone posted that, and mm -hmm. I saw that recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Let me, I'll, I'll post it on my Twitter, I guess, since Louise is following me on Twitter, and it seems like, you know, people actually... So you're really cool. You've got a follower on Twitter too, so you can tell your kids. <laughs> Actually, tell, tell, you, tell your kids you've got followers on Twitter in England. They'll be calling me a stalker next. We're on the podcast and now I'm following you. But actually, the one thing that did interest me about what you just said and what that article showed was it brings me back to Kathleen Corey. She did a presentation at Arzold on cardiovascular, where by accident, they, by accident, uh, in the cardiac study about um, cardiac events and first time events, where they got some Something like four, was it six thousand scans of liver in those fourteen thousand scans, and where simple steatosis was present on the MRI or the CT of the liver that they did, there was a seventy-five percent patients of that category had a first cardiac event. So that would again support this whole thing that simple steatosis causes a significant risk. So even her data was showing that, and that was an incidental sub-study of a cardiac study into cardiac events and first events. Which, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was a really, really interesting piece because I remember doing it for the podcast as well. I'll have to go back to that one. If it was in Oslo, we, if it was in, in ASLD, we can find it. I'm going to run out of time soon because I've got to be on a plane in a couple of hours. But one of the things that comes out of the conversation of simple steatosis, and Naeem, you and I were talking about this with Stephen offline the other day in a completely different context, is that it will become increasingly important to educate different stakeholders about the things that matter most to them. So if all you taught a primary care physician was the simple steatosis data and gave them a simple way to figure out how to triage out of that, that would be huge. If all we did was teach patients that when somebody says exactly as you guys said, you've got fatty liver, don't worry about it, go get a second opinion and ask yourself, go back to other things you've seen with your physician and see, does, is this person really paying attention or not? Right now, that's not a question you're, you're going to ask your doctor, but on a podcast, you can, whatever, we'll figure it out. This podcast provides a lot of high level information on a lot of subjects. People tell me it's invaluable. I, I think it probably helps a lot. But there are things we can do to work through to different audiences that don't need to know nearly as much, but need to know it better. And when I saw the simple steatosis paper, that was my immediate reaction, was in the hands of primary care and in the hands of, uh, say, any patient with the BMI over 22, 23. This is really important. Yeah, and this is something I would like to see this coming year is, uh, you know, we have uh, guests that are not NASH experts, that are actually primary care physicians, endocrinologists, and we hear their perspective on uh, NAFLD and its impact and their practice and what they think. And maybe we can have one guest who's an expert in NAFLD and then hear from different groups. I think you'd be surprised, Roger, but NAFLD is affecting every specialty. I mean, I visit offices that are podiatry because they have tons of diabetics. I visit offices that do sleep medicine, obstructive sleep apnea, cardiology, endocrinology, oncology, because the presence of NAFLD may affect chemotherapy. 
therapy and how you know your liver can handle therapeutic agents that are needed for cancer treatment. So almost every specialty could be affected by NAFLD. And it'll be nice to hear what they think and how they evaluate for it or if they find it incidentally, what do they do about it? Do they actually tell the patients, don't worry, you may have a little bit of fatty liver? I would love to have these conversations and hear from them. We need to educate ourselves on what they do and what they think. And therefore, how to help out. So for those of you who are listening, one of the things you might have figured out in the last half hour is that Naeem is something of an idea fountain, and they're usually great ideas. Um, You know, uh, seriously, I I value our conversations because you come up with so much stuff like this, and I do some of it, but I think about all of it, and then the question is how to fit it in. But we can talk about that offline. Louise, first of all, thanks for everything today. I'll see you Monday. Naeem, thank you. And let's find a time the next couple of weeks to catch up, A, on the next episode that you're going to drive, but B, on how we take some of these ideas and bring them forward. Because I could see doing a monthly feature, for example, where each month you bring in somebody from a different specialty who's not an academic, who's a high volume treater. What does NAFL mean in this practice? That I think that's a great idea. I think it would help a lot. Yeah. We can also have academic people that are top notch in the field, you know, like endocrinologists. Fantastic. I think it's a great idea. So, Naeem, thank you so much. Louise, thanks for the whole day. And uh, I'll see I'll see you Monday. I'll see you uh, Happy in the birthday near future. tomorrow. Enjoy your trip. N- Name stay Thank cool you so to your kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bye bye now, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, August 4th, when Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg join us to discuss their article comparing comprehensive care models to look for general rules which can apply to the treatment and management of natural patients. It's a fantastic article and a great conversation. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.